book of Mark. Um, and I'm going to do it a little differently than we normally do today, uh, just because this scripture, this particular passage is very dense and full of like a lot of really good morsels that we can chew on. So we're going to kind of stop as we go through the scripture and stop in, at different points and chew on it. But before we do that, let's just have a quick word of prayer and then we'll we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this group of people. We thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to come together, worship together, uh, get to know one another, enjoy one another, encourage and stir up one another to good works. Uh, we ask you, Lord, to be with us today. Uh, let your presence be known. Let your presence be felt. Open our hearts. Open our minds to your spirit. Open our minds to your word. And God, uh, bless me as I, as I try to present um, your uh, scripture uh, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Um, the, the, the title of this sermon is called The Risks and the Rewards of Trusting. The Risks and the Rewards of Trusting. Uh, when I was a, a little kid, probably four or five years old, my family took a vacation down to Orlando, Florida. And it was really, really exciting for us kids because we, we were all from the Midwest. I had never seen the ocean before. Uh, so we go down to, to uh, 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 Orlando, Florida. And um, we go to the beach. And if, you've, if, you've, if any of you remember the experience of seeing the beach for the first time or the ocean for the first time, especially if you're a little kid, it sort of invokes this excitement, but it also invo- invokes this sort of fear. Because the biggest body of water I had ever seen was a blow-up kiddie pool in my neighbor's backyard. And so to see this massive body of water surging back and forth, coming up onto the sand and then pulling back and then coming up. It was exciting, but it was daunting, and it was just a little bit, a little bit terrifying, actually. Um, I will never forget how on the first morning of our vacation at the beach, my dad sort of gently tried to coax me down uh, to the waterfront. And if you're, a, if you're a dad today, you know sometimes you sort of try to encourage your children to get past their childhood fears and sort of experience things that they otherwise wouldn't without just a gentle nudge from dad. So um, that's what he was doing. He was trying to get me down to the beach. And I remember how he took me by the hand and he led me down to the shoreline where the waves sort of lapped up against our toes and just kind of, we just stood at the water's edge. And I remember distinctly feeling very scared, but I also trusted him. I trusted him. And he had me, you know, he had my, he had my hand. So we start to wade out. I remember the water being really cold and the sun being really hot. So we start wading out into the water. Um, my heart was racing. The waves are slapping against my shins, then against my knees, then against my waist as we kind of moved out into the water. I squeezed my dad's hand as tightly as I could. Uh, I was trying to ward off the fear that the ocean would pull me from his grasp and drag me down. I was just terrified. I remember distinctly being really scared. Scared of the water and scared of heights. Um, And then, suddenly, out of nowhere, what I feared happened. You know how sometimes you'll have like nine or ten waves that are just nice and easy, and then suddenly here comes this monster wave, and that's what happened. Here comes this huge wave, two or three times bigger than the other waves that had been coming, and it just hit us both. It just slammed us both, and I went down. I went right under the water. My hand slipped out from his. I remember, I actually remember very clearly, I called my mom about this this week and to see if she, to she, to see if she remembered this week. And, and she was like, oh yes, I remember very distinctly. I went down, I remember hearing the water just crashing around, the surf, the waves, the sand. I remember seeing like 
I don't know if it was in my, I don't know if my eyes were open or closed, but sort of dark and then bright and flashes of light swirling around. And the most vivid memory was the memory of feeling sand going along my back as I was scooting out by the undertow. Um, I can't remember what I was thinking, but I was probably thinking about whether or not this was such a bright idea to trust Dad on this particular day. Um, so I'm under the water. I'm gliding out. I'm, uh, I'm scared, and suddenly I feel, wham, I feel this really strong hand on my arm. Yank, I'm out of the water. There's my dad. He's, scared. He's more scared than me. He's just like wild-eyed, throws me up on his shoulder, plows his way back up onto the beach. Uh, my mom and my sisters are all huddling together. Everybody is a little bit terrified but great, greatly relieved, and we all sort of clumped together and took a deep breath, calmed down, and, and sort of got it together. Well, later that afternoon, after the waves went down, after our fears subsided a little bit, we decided, let's go back out into the water. And so this time it was without incident. And before long, we were swimming, we were splashing, we were boogie boarding, body surfing, swimming in the ocean and having an awesome time. Um, But the reward of this newfound love of the ocean, this, this reward of like having one of the greatest vacations I can remember was accompanied by the risk of having to trust my dad on that very first morning, that first step into the ocean. Today's passage, and we're going to go through it, today's passage is all about risk. It's about trust and it's about risk. It's about a father and a son and how a father leads his son into a situation where there's the possibility of great reward, but there's also the possibility of great risk. So let's just dig right into the passage. This passage, Mark chapter 9, Uh, We have been going straight through the book of Mark, and so we're now at chapter 9, starting with verse 14. So if you remember last week, let me just recap real quickly. Last week, Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up to the mountaintop, and uh, they they experienced this transfiguration. They experienced this moment where there was this brilliant light. Jesus radiated this glory and this magnificence, and the disciples didn't know what to do, and it it was... terrifying and fascinating and, and, and brilliant. And they come down sort of glowing from this experience and they come down. And when they came back down from the mountain, and that's what we pick up in 14, when they came down, uh, they came down to the other disciples. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So they go from the great religious ecstatic experience back down to the valley where religious people are arguing. Okay. So there's the scribes, who are the religious experts, the, the, the legal religious experts. There's the disciples, nine of them, and then there's a great crowd, and they're all squabbling and arguing. Um, have, have any of you ever noticed how religious people like to argue with one another? Anybody ever experienced that? Um, and sometimes the more minute and trivial the point, the more vehemently they argue. Have you ever experienced that? Um, I saw a post this week, and I'm just going to share some of it with you online. And the post is a, it's just sort of a humorous post a blog post, and it was called 47 Church Splits Finally Brings Doctrinal Perfection. 47 Church Splits Finally Brings Doctrinal Perfection. The post describes this little town in Centerville, Georgia. There's a population of just over 5,000 people, but there are a total of 48 community churches. The high number of churches in this town was the result of multiple splits over the years. So originally in 1899, there was only one community church, it was simply known as the Centerville Community Church, or CCC for short. Had about 50 families, 
It was the largest church in the area. But then a dispute arose as to whether the offering should be taken before or after the sermon. Okay? Very important stuff. A number, a, a number of boards and committees were formed. Discussion groups arose within the church. And they couldn't reach a resolution, so the church split. The dissenting congregation formed a new church called the Centerville Reformed Community Church, or CRCC for short. In 1915, another dispute arose over the issue of whether there should be flowers in the sanctuary or whether flowers should remain in the lobby. Uh, Again, committees were formed. No resolution could be reached. No consensus could be reached. So the church split again, and there was a new church formed called Centerville Holiness Reformed Community Church, or CHRCC for short. You see where this is going? More splits took place over the years, issues ranging from eschatology to the placement of communion cups and the appropriate color of the church's carpet. One group, for example, splintered after a dispute about the relative importance of Jesus' three closest disciples and formed a church called the Centerville St. John Holiness Reformed Community Church. But immediately, a faction arose in that church who disapproved of the title saint being exclusively applied to the disciples. And so with 11 people, they splintered off and formed the Centerville John the Beloved Holiness Reformed Community of the Sainthood of All Believers Church, or CJTBHRCSABC for short. All right. All right, I'll just finish it, but you know where this is going. Over the last 100 years, several more splits took place. The most recent one in 2010, where a dispute arose over the issue of the observance of the Sabbath. The issue in question was whether it was acceptable to check your email on Sunday or not. The dissenting group in that dispute have now split off and formed the Centerville Totally Reformed Neo-Holiness John the Beloved of the Sainthood of All Believers, Credo-Baptismalist, Premillennial, Post-Sabbatarian, Quasi-Cessationist, Nouveau Charismatic Community Church or C-T-R-N-H-J-B-S-A-B-C-B-P-M-P-S-Q-C-N-C-C-C for short. So recently, an elder at this most recently formed congregation was quoted as saying, I think we finally got it right now. We have the church with 100% doctrinal purity, and we're ready to grow, and we're ready to reach out to the community. When asked about the size of the congregation, he responded, numbers aren't important, but both my grandpa and I firmly believe some people will join us soon. So... Religious people like to argue, right? I mean, they just, they like to quarrel. And this is, happens over and over in the Gospels. Jesus' disciples, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they start to, they squabble over every little thing. Uh, and Jesus always seems to be coming in going, hey, you know, you guys are squabbling and, and, and uh, arguing amongst yourselves. And there's real issues going on. There are real people hurting. And he always comes in with compassion and takes care of the real thing. Um, so let's go to verse 15. Immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed. They ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able to. This is sort of a heartbreaking moment, actually, because we've got a, uh, a man whose son is profoundly afflicted with a terrible malady. Uh, Jesus comes. He comes to Jesus' followers for help. And not only can they not do anything, uh, but they've allowed themselves to get sidetracked into vain contentions with the, with the scribes and the, and the Sadducees. Um, uh, so it's, they're really missing the point here. And, and we see this throughout, we, throughout the book, is that Jesus' disciples... They're just, they just missed the point over and over and over again. 
Um, and I'm glad that the Bible exposes that because it does that for our benefits, that when we keep screwing up over and over again, we can say, yeah, well, they did it too. Can you forgive me? Yes, and he will. Um, let me just mention briefly about this passage. Religion, this passage, this little scripture means to me that religion on its own is powerless. Religion is powerless. We've got nine followers of Jesus. We've got a, how many countless number of scribes. We've got a whole crowd of people. We've got a man and a boy that needs help, and nobody can do anything. Nobody's got, nobody can do anything for this guy. Religion cannot heal you. Religion cannot bring you hope. It cannot restore a broken heart. It cannot free you from your sins. It can't save your kids. It can't liberate you from addictions. It cannot bring lasting peace. Religion can't do anything. Religion is a paper tiger. It's not capable of doing anything. But when Jesus steps into the crowd and says, I'm bringing the source of power. I'm coming. When Jesus comes in, everything changes. Everything changes. I think this scripture, this part of the scripture is telling us all of the observance in the world, all of the rites and rituals and dogmas and doctrines and all of that is powerless if you don't have the source, the source of the power stepping into your life. If you don't have Jesus, if Jesus is far away and he's not there, you're not going to have the power to transform your life. So Jesus steps into the scene and he and, and he and he uh, and he answered the the uh, the man. He says in verse 19, oh, faithless generation. <laughs> I love this part, but he gets a little he gets a little frustrated. Remember, he's been with these guys two and a half years now, two and a half years. He's been with the disciples. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? He says, how long am I to bear with you? <laughs> uh, his patience is running dry here. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said from childhood and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. There are a couple of points I want to just stop real quickly and make about that portion. We've read in the book of Mark, uh, there have been a number of these instances in the book of Mark where there is you know, what appears to be an exorcism where there's some sort of a person is oppressed by an, an evil spirit. And I know that as in the contemporary modern society, we read that and we go, I don't have anything to relate that to. I can't hook into that. Um, and some would say, well, the first century uh, people, they, they couldn't tell the difference between epilepsy and demon possession, you know. And so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ideas and thoughts about this. But I would say, I just want to posit this. I think that the scriptures, I think that the Bible provides a more holistic approach, a more holistic view of humans than even our sort of highly critical, analytical 21st century model. In that, we attribute everything to a physical ailment or a mental ailment. And I think what the scripture does is it incorporates the possibility that sometimes there are, there's a spiritual ailment going on. And sometimes things can't just be traced to the physical or the physiological or the mental or the psychological. Sometimes there's a spiritual element at work in our lives and it may heighten, it may exacerbate, it may, um, it, it may, it may influence some other issue that we have, but the scripture I think provides this brilliant view of the, of the person. And that is not just mind and body, but mind, body, and spirit. There's a spiritual component to who we are that underlies 
our physical hardware, okay? We're not just our brain. We're not just our body. That's all I'm going to say about that. But um, So Jesus asks him, and I love what Jesus asks him. Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus wants to know the guy's story. He knows that he's going to be able to heal him. I mean, we don't, we, when we start to read this scripture, we don't go, hey, is Jesus going to be able to heal him? We've been doing this for, you know, six months. We've been reading the book of Mark. We know the end of this story. We know that Jesus is going to be able to do it. But Jesus wants to, wants to know what's going on with the guy. What's your story, he says. What's, how long has this been happening? That's a, that's a moment of compassion. That's Jesus saying, hey, I want to hear where you're coming from. I want, I want you to be able to describe to me what's been happening in your life. The Bible is so steeped in story. The whole Bible is the story of God's redemption. Jesus spoke in stories. He taught in parables. I think it's valuable and appropriate for us sometimes, and we tend to anyway, but to think of our lives in terms of a story. What story are you a part of? Who's the lead character in your story? What story are you in? As you think about your life, whose story are you in? Where are you in that story? Um, God, God is concerned with that. I feel like we are all part of a much larger story. I used to think that there was a story called the Brent Rome story. And I was the lead character in that story. And everybody else was a peripheral character. And at some point, that, that story just got crushed by reality. And... Now I say, man, I am in God's story and I'm one of the characters, one of billions of characters in God's story of love and redemption and grace uh, and salvation. And I like being in that story. That's a lot better story to be in. Um, This scripture also presents a number of characters. And I would just encourage you to think as we're talking through this. Who are you in this story? Are you the scribes? Are you one of the religious experts that sort of lacks compassion in this instance? Are you the disciples, a follower of Jesus, but still not able to fully live in your, in your potential, not totally getting it yet? That's probably a lot of us. Are you the crowd that's standing around? So you've got the disciples, the scribes, and you've got the crowd, a person who's not sure what to make of all this, but curious. Hmm, what's going on? What's going to happen? Um, are you the father, the father who as we'll see in a minute, has faith, but also is riddled with doubts. You have a need, but, and you believe and you hope and you have faith, but you're, you're not quite, you're, you've got doubts. You're not sure. Are you the father or are you the son? You are desperately in need of God's radical transformation of your life. And without it, you are in danger. Where, which, which character are you in this story? Um, verse 22, the father says, if you can do anything, Please have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. I love this story. This, this, this line and the, and, the, and the following line are one of the most important bits of dialogue in the scripture. Where Jesus and this disciple or Jesus and this father who is in need are having a discussion. Um, and... We'll see what the, the father says in a minute, but we're going to talk more about this. Um, what Jesus is saying here, this is what I think Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is that when you place your heart, your trust, your faith in the one who created everything. OK, when you give your heart and give your mind 
to the author of the law of physics, to the architect of the cosmos, when you give yourself, you give your hopes, you give your dreams, your fears, your anxieties, your aspirations, you give all of that to the true source of all life, then everything becomes possible because nothing is impossible with God. That's what I think he's saying. I don't think he's saying that you get everything you want. You snap your fingers and a Cadillac's going to land in your front yard. I don't think that's what he's saying. But what he's saying is connect with the spirit that controls everything and everything becomes possible to you. 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, and this is one of those candid moments that I love, I believe, help my unbelief. The father, if you notice in this story, is the only figure in this entire scene who is acknowledging his weakness. He's the only one who's coming out with the candor and the honesty and saying, I need your help. I don't have it all together. I believe, but I'm not totally there. I've got unbelief. I've got doubt. I've got reservation. Helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to accessing the power of God. You don't come to God with all that you think you are or all that you think you have. You come to him, lead with your weakness. When you, you know, when you're encountering somebody else, you know, you may lead with your strength. You may, in a normal situation, you know, when two guys meet, well, I do this and I do that, you know. But when you come to God, you got to come with your weakness. He's not impressed by your strength, I assure you. He's not impressed by your righteousness, I assure you. He's impressed by your ability to come to him Open your heart in faith and open your 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 vulnerability to him. Let him know where you're hurting. That's what he can work with. Um, and the man in this story. Tells the truth. He says, I do believe, but I still have doubts. Uh, Mark Twain has this great quote, which I love, and it works on many levels. But he says, when in doubt, tell the truth, tell the truth. Uh, there was a, my mom was a, a, the leader of a preschool one, uh, many years ago. And this little boy came, was sent to her office. She was the, she was the, I guess you call it headmaster or something. And this little boy was sent to her office and I don't know what he did, but he was in big trouble. So my mom sits him down and she's, she's behind the desk and he's over there. And my mom says, now, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And the kid thinks a minute and he goes, because it was my birthday and I forgot to bring you a cupcake. <laughs> my mom like just, just trying not to laugh. So we always, that's a, that's a line in my house now. If I get in trouble, I go, well, I did that because it's my birthday and I forgot to bring you a cupcake. Um, you know, it's better just to tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Uh, what about the doubt part of this? H- how do we deal theologically with the doubt? I, the, uh, uh, Rene Descartes, the great 17th century philosopher and mathematician who was also a, a devout Christian in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, he's dubbed the father of modern philosophy. I love what he, he says. He's quoted as saying, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible everything. At some point in your life, you're going to face doubt. And you know what? Jesus in this story is saying, that's fine. That's fine. Bring your doubts to me. This is a sort of a paradox because when we doubt, sometimes we don't want to bring our doubts to God because we're embarrassed or we think that we're not able to 
you know, we're not able to show him who we are. But when we take our doubts to someone other than God, then we're not going to get the doubt resolved, okay? Bring your doubt, bring your weakness, bring your fear, bring your trepidation, bring your skepticism, bring your questions, bring it all to God. He can handle it. He can take care of it. He's not intimidated. Um, the 20th century theologian D. Elton Trueblood, this guy was a, uh, uh, he was a uh, former chaplain both at Harvard and at Stanford. So he's a sharp, he's a sharp cookie. Uh, but I love what he says. He says, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. You don't have to get it all. You don't have to understand it all. But there has to be an element of trust where you say, Jesus, this father says, Jesus, I don't get it all, but I'm bringing you the most precious thing to me. My son, I'm bringing him to you. I'm trusting you to take care of him. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. Now, this would have been an interesting moment for the dad because the dad brought a son who was mute. And after Jesus touched him, the son looks like he's dead. That's not a good thing. You don't want you don't want to to bring your son for a healing for muteness. And suddenly he appears to be dead. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes they've got to get worse before they get better. There's a funny story. My my when my when my father passed away, he had a he had a Honda Shadow motorcycle. And I already had I, I had a different motorcycle. That's a long backstory. But so my so his 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 motorcycle passed down to my sister, Sharinda. And Sharinda, um, you know, it was there was something wrong with it. It was running, but it wasn't running great. It kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, sort of like, I don't know what you call it, but like that. Um, so she was going to try to get it fixed. She was started to date this guy, and the guy goes, oh, yeah, I can fix this motorcycle. Um, and so he took it all apart, and he took all the bits apart and put them all over the place, put them all over the garage, and then they broke up. <laughs> so then she started dating someone else not long after, and he came along and said, oh, yeah, 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 no, I can fix this, and he took more pieces apart. And spread it, and then they broke up. Okay. So in our family, the trick is we say, you know what? The person who puts this motorcycle back together will have our sister's hand. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's only that's only that story is only good for the breaking it apart part. But there are a lot of situations in life where you actually do have to things have to get worse before they get better. If you're going to get the tumor out, you got to cut open the skin. You got to you got to perform the surgery. Um, uh, sometimes the doctor has to has to cut you open to get the tumor out. Sometimes the drug addict has to go through withdrawal before he can regain his faculties. Sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of our sins. We don't like this. Sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of our mistakes and our sins before we can move into the fullness of our redemption. Jesus will forgive you instantaneously, but if you've if you've done stuff that needs resolution, you've got to go resolve it. And it's messy and it's dirty and you don't want to do it. Sometimes we have to go through the valleys before we get to our next mountaintop. 
Sometimes, like an old clay pot, we've got to be broken down and ground into dust so that we can be reformed, malleable, pliable in the hands of God. Paul had to go blind before he could see. The children of Israel had to walk through the desert for 40 years before entering the land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus had to hang on the cross before he could resurrect from the tomb. So if any of you are struggling today and things seem worse than they did before, know that sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes they just have to get worse before they get better. The scripture says that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So the, the, man, the boy looked dead. Uh, everyone around is looking at the boy. Is he dead? 27, verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. We don't know if he was, we don't know from the story. It, it looks like he just appeared dead. He may have actually momentarily died. It doesn't say. Um, he may have just been mostly dead. Remember the Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya? Um, those of you that like that movie really like that movie. But we know that when Jesus took him by the hand, he arose. Let me just say this about the scripture and, and, it, and its application. Jesus is reaching out to some of you today. Some of you know that, you, that there is a spiritual death inside of you. Some of you may be Christians that have fallen into a life that you know is not pleasing to God. And there's a deadness and decay in your spiritual life. Some of you are not yet Christians, but you sense that there's a spiritual emptiness, a spiritual void, a spiritual vacuum in your heart that you do. You want it to be filled, but you're not quite sure how. Uh, Some of you are devoted and committed Christians who have just let yourself become distracted by your busy life. And so so you're. Uh, Your relationship with God is withered. But wherever you are on that trajectory, just know that the God of the universe adores you. He wants a relationship with you. He has compassion on you. He is reaching out to you, not to condemn you, but to fill you with life, to fill you with health, to fill you with strength, courage, and hope. He's reaching out to those who appear dead. Verse 28, and when he entered the house, when Jesus entered the house after raising the boy up, His disciples turned to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Um, They're 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 still focused on themselves. They're like, we tried all the tricks we did. We yelled and screamed and snorted and had all. Why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And in the in the parallel passage in Matthew, it says prayer and fasting. But what Jesus is talking about is spiritual discipline. He's talking about. These kinds of things cannot be addressed unless you are deeply connected with the source of your power. And you're going to you're going to do that through prayer and fasting and scripture and and the spiritual disciplines. So I want to just very briefly go over uh, three sort of main points that I think we can draw from the scripture. Um, I know we did it a little differently today where I'm stopping and, and discussing the scripture as we go along. But there are three sort of stick out points for me. And that is one is that faith in man results in bitter disappointment. Faith in man results in bitter disappointment. Number two, faith in God results in boundless possibility. Faith in God results in boundless possibility. And number three, faith in practice requires steady discipline. Faith in practice requires steady discipline. Number one, faith in man results in bitter disappointment. You know, 
There's the, I just love the image of all of these guys standing around, this man and this father who are in need, and they're all religious people, and they all should have power. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus gave the disciples authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick, and here they are, you know, six months later, and they, they can't do it. You know, when we put our hope, when we put our trust in people, we're going to be disappointed. Some of you probably already are. Some of you have experienced things either in church or with family or a religious leader or a parent or a friend or a sibling or a spouse or a child has disappointed you and let you down and hurt you. And that is the nature of being a human being. That's what's going to happen. That is just going to happen. And so we cannot put our trust in man. We cannot put our whole trust in man. I, uh, this week, Jameson is now almost four years old. So he has reached this stage of, he's passed the, the, uh, fits, but now he's at a stage where he wants to see what he can get away with. How long, if daddy says, Jameson, I need you to go upstairs and put your pajamas on. He wants to just see what'll happen if he doesn't go upstairs and put his pajamas. Well, let's just see what'll happen. So he's testing, he's testing. And uh, this week, there was one night this week, there were like three or four instances in a row where I, where I said, okay, do this. And he did the opposite so that I put him in timeout. And I said, go do this. And he didn't do it. So I put him in another timeout. And then he did, he got out of, actually got out of timeout. He called out of timeout. And I go, go back in timeout. And he wouldn't do it. He said, no. So I said, okay, you're going to bed. So I put him up and I put him to bed and I said, you need to stay in bed. You disobey daddy. And I walk downstairs, two minutes later, I see him standing in the family room like this, kind of like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, what am I going to do? And uh, <laughs> I take him back upstairs, I put him in bed, and I like stood over him and I go, Jameson, you stay in bed, mister. And I got my finger like this close to his nose. And I come downstairs and I'm feeling like, I'm like, my heart's beating. Like, I'm mad. I'm mad. And uh, Rebecca is there, and I go, like, take a deep breath. I go, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but, like, he, when, he, when he's defiant like that and disobeys me, like, my blood pressure goes through the roof, and I, I don't know what to do. Um, and she's like, well, you know, if you ever need me to step in, um, I'll be happy to. So, uh, so what I did, what I did was I sat down, and then I thought, you know what, you know, that was over the top. Like, I, I, I was, like, standing over him and, like, it was probably intimidating for him, you know. Maybe I'm a pushover. I don't know. But I went back upstairs. I know some of you guys are saying, what do you mean? Now it's nothing. I go back upstairs and I go, hey, man, I just, you know, you really got to listen to daddy. You really got to. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I said, uh, I'm really sorry that I raised my voice and got mad at you. You know, I'm really sorry about that. And he goes, yeah, well, I'm I, I'm I'm really sorry I didn't listen to you. And we ended up having this like really nice. Then I read him a story and he went to bed and everything was cool. But like I realized that there are going to be a thousand times in this kid's life where I'm going to let him down. I'm going to disappoint him. I'm going to I'm not going to be I'm going to lose my temper. I'm going to fly off the handle. I'm going to be a jerk. I might, you know, I'm going to let him down. He's going to let me down. I'm going to let Rebecca down. She's going to let me down. Your, your spouse is going to let you down. We're going to disappoint each other. That's just what we do. If someone hasn't disappointed you, you don't know them well enough. You need to get to know them. But Jesus is saying, don't put your trust in people. 
don't put your trust in people. Don't 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 let your spiritual life turn on the whether or not the people who are representing Jesus. Don't let your spiritual life turn on whether or not they're doing a good job because they're going to mess it up. They're going to mess it up. Psalm 118.8 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Amen. Romans 3 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Jeremiah 17, this is the strongest one, and it's, and it's extensive. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed is he. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He, the person who puts his trust in man, shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds terrible. Salt land. Blessed is the man, he says, who trusts in the Lord, because he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. I love that when he's not afraid of when the heat comes. Because when you put your trust in man and the heat comes, the man's going to betray you. He's going to turn and he's going to run. And G- every single one of Jesus' disciples exemplified that. When it came to the night of his crucifixion, his guys were nowhere to be found. They were hiding in the shadows. They were hiding behind you know, the skirts of their wives and their moms. And, 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 and when they were called out, When Peter was called out, he explicitly betrayed him and denied him and cursed him. Don't trust in people. You'll be like a shriveled, a shriveled uh, plant out in the desert all by yourself. And when the heat comes, you're going to get parched and blow away. Put your trust in God. Plant yourself next to the stream of God's scripture. Plant yourself thoroughly in the soil of God's love. Only trust in God. Give God your heart. Don't give people your heart. And you will grow and you will flourish and you will bear fruit and you will provide shade and you will provide shelter and you will provide food. You will become like a tree planted by the water. Trees of, uh, trees of righteousness. The glory of the Lord that he might be glorified. Um, the scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He's going to direct your path. So this scripture is just telling us, hey, trust in God. Latch on to something real. Latch on to the thing that's going to last. Number two is faith in God results in boundless possibility. Faith in God results in boundless possibility. And I want to carefully go through this part of the scripture with you. Because when I was a kid, there were evangelists who had a very colorful flair to them. They would come and they would take a passage like this. And by the time they were done preaching that all things are possible with God, you felt like you could walk outside, snap your fingers, and like, you know, like I said, a a, a Cadillac would fall into your front. I mean, they they took it into a very kind of twisted way. They took it into the sense that if you have faith in God, you get whatever you want. And that's not what Jesus is saying. That is not at all what Jesus. In fact, this is this is a true story. One of these evangelists who will go unnamed came through our church when I was a kid, preached this sermon that, you know, when you're a kid, you're believing it the way he's saying it. Uh, And basically was using this passage to say you get whatever you want. You know, you, you can snap your fingers and get whatever you want if you have faith. That 
next day, we kind of lived, this is when we lived up in Ohio for a few years, that next day, and we lived kind of out in this area where there was like acreage and, and fields and stuff. The next day, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see, I'm going to see, you know, what happens here. I'm going to try what the, what the uh, evangelist said, because he said, if I just, whatever I want, if I have faith, it, it'll happen. So I was walking through the field, and I swear this is a true story. There's a little bird, a, a bird that had died and fallen on the ground in the field. And I said, if I have faith, I can say to this bird, rise up and fly, and it'll do it. So I'm standing there, you know, I'm about six, and I go, rise up and fly. In Jesus' name, up you go. Well, guess what happened? Nothing, okay? Uh, nothing happened. So I'm like, hey, hold on a second. Um, I don't think what Jesus is saying is that you get whatever you want. You get whatever you want. I think what Jesus is saying you get what you need when you have faith in me. When you have faith in me, you will get what you need. Nothing is impossible. Doesn't mean I'm going to give you everything, but everything becomes possible. Um, all things are possible to those who believe means that when you put your faith in God, when you are entering into when you're entering into a trusting relationship with God, you're entering into a realm of infinite possibilities because you are entering into a relationship with the one who created everything. When Jesus performs a miracle, it's not a miracle. It's not a miracle for him to perform a miracle. He's just putting things back right the way they're supposed to be. You know, when God created the world, there wasn't sickness and hurt and pain and suffering and struggle. That's a result in a spiritual sense of the fall. So when Jesus is healing people and restoring people, he's just putting things back the right way. It's not, it's not suspending the law of physics. It's, pu- it's putting the law of physics back into, into place, the divine law that he, put, that he created. He's putting things back the way they should be. So when we... Hitch our wagon, if you will, to Jesus. When we hitch our wagon, when we, when we, when we enter into a, a relationship with God, we are entering into a relationship with one who can do anything, who is capable of doing anything. It reminds me of like a little kid. When a little kid is born, he has no idea that there are all these universes around him like literature, science, math, language, music, culture, nature. When they're a little child, they don't know that these sort of separate worlds and spheres exist. But as they develop the possibilities of entering into these worlds that were previously closed become open. For example, when a, when a child learns to read, suddenly he enters into a universe that he didn't know existed. All kinds of things become available to that child by learning to read. Also, when a child learns to do math or something, you know, um, addition, multiplication, subtraction, division, you know, that's as far as I went, but some of you may have gone farther. Um, trigonometry, geometry, not even sure I can pronounce them, uh, calculus. So when we learn about these things, we enter into brand new possibilities. And, and I think what happens is when we enter into a relationship with God, we are entering into a realm where there, where there is infinite possibility because he is the governor. He is the creator of everything. Does that make sense? Am I? Okay. I'll work on it. I'll preach that again next Sunday. Um, Jesus didn't heal every sick person he encountered. He could have, but he didn't. So faith in God doesn't give you the power to do whatever you want, but it gives you the assurance that you are the child of the one who holds the world in the palm of his hands. Faith in God results in boundless possibility because God rules and reigns supreme over all that is. Number three, and this is the last one. I'm going to give you this really quick. Faith in practice 
requires steady discipline. This is Jesus saying, you know, why, when the disciples say, how come we couldn't do this? Jesus says, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. What he's saying is, you've got to be connected to the source of power. You've got to develop a relationship with God if you want to be able to demonstrate the power of God. Okay, you've got to be, you've got to have the discipline of maintaining a relationship. This, did, did anybody ever see the movie Sling Blade? Yeah. So there's this great, this great little scene. And, and so in Sling Blade, this, this um, man who is played by Billy Bob Thornton, he's released from the, uh, the state mental hospital. He's, me- he's mentally disabled. He has, a, he has the thinking capacity of just a little child. But he goes to, and he gets a job. He, he can work on small engines. So he goes and he gets a job at a gas station. And one day a guy brings a lawnmower to the gas station. And all these guys are trying to get the lawnmower working, and they can't figure out what's going on. And the owner of the gas station's there, and the other guy is is working there, and uh, Scooter, I think, is the other guy's name. And they're all standing around. They're like, "Well, I can't, we can't figure it out." And they say, "Carl, come here and see if you know what's going on." And Carl comes over, and he's a real simple guy, you know. And he unscrews the gas cap, and he looks down. And he goes, "It ain't got no gas in it." You know, sometimes it's what, what I think what Jesus is saying is you got to have the fuel. You got to be connected to the power if you want to be able to demonstrate God's power. You got to you've got to be fueled up. You need to be have you need to have the spiritual discipline of prayer and fasting and be in a deep relationship with God before you can demonstrate his power. Mahalia Jackson says faith and prayer are the vitamins of the soul. Man cannot live in health without them. What do we do? We pray, we study the scripture. We come to church, we serve, we give, we surround ourselves with other people who will inspire and stir up goodness in us, and we develop a relationship with God, and thereby we develop spiritual strength and spiritual power. Does that make sense? You know, if I want to, uh, I'll close here in just a second, but if I want to stay close to my wife, then I have to, I have to be rigorous and vigilant about setting aside some time to spend that's exclusively with her, Okay? Friday night is our date night. If you're trying to get a hold of me on Friday night, good luck. It ain't going to happen. You know, and when we develop a relationship with God, we need to be able to set aside a time in our life that is devoted to God. Whether it's in scripture reading, studying, Bible study with other people, prayer, fasting, whatever it is, these spiritual disciplines are vitally important. If you want to draw close to God, you want to tap into that world, of infinite possibility, you have to develop a relationship with the one who makes it all possible. Uh, If you say, well, I'm not sure that I believe, that's fine. He can work with that. If you haven't, you know, you say, well, I haven't really been living right. He can work with that. You still have doubts and reservations. He can work with that. You still have some bad behaviors and addictions. He can work with that. The point is that you reach out to him with honesty and draw close to him and open yourself to him. And I'll close with this. The promise of this passage is that if you reach out to God with honesty and faith, despite your imperfections, despite your unbelief, despite your questions and concerns, despite your hesitation and reluctance, if you expose your needy heart to him and call on him, he will answer you. He will answer you. Let me encourage you to call on him today. Reach out to him today. He is as close as your next breath. He really is. He's here with you. He's always been with you. Even if you didn't feel him, he was with you. Even if you didn't see him, he was with you. Even if you didn't hear him, he was with you. He's here now. He will always be with you. And he's reaching out to you.
Let's pray.